The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for June 11th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. We are going to do uh, put your left foot in, you put your left foot out. It's the infrastructure hokey pokey and we turn it all about. Uh, Capito's out. The G20 is in. What the hell that means. What it portends going forward. That will be discussed. We're going to go a little international as well as one of the most uh, elongated brains in, in my lifetime is likely to come to an end in probably but a short less than 48 hours from when you hear this, that is the reign of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. Will he be able to pull off an 11th hour miracle to extend his reign? We find that out. Also, we are going to discuss a very interesting intersection between politics and journalism. This is mostly a journalism conversation, but it involves Sarah Palin. Indeed, Sarah Palin is going to court against the New York Times for the fact that they wrote something that at least lower courts agree is worth hearing might have been libelous toward Sarah Palin. What they wrote, whether or not they're in the wrong, we discuss with Bill Gruskin of the uh, Columbia Journalism Review. All that, Here's the short, 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 short version on infrastructure. Joe Biden has in an infrastructure plan that he split into two halves. Those two halves add up to somewhere just a scotch north of $4 trillion. The first half of it is called the American Jobs Plan. Initially, it started out at $2.4 trillion. The Republicans said, good Lord, no. We got about $600 billion. So then the Biden administration said, all right, we'll come down 1.7 trillion. Now, this is where we get into some he said, she said stuff, literally. At this point, Shelley Moore Capito, who is representing the Senate Republicans, came to the White House and said, what is a likely point in which we can both land on? And so, according to her, Biden tells her, look, if you can come back with a trillion dollars in spending, then then we'll kick around exactly how we pay for it, which right now they don't agree on. So she does. Comes back and says, hey, look, here's a trillion dollars in spending. And Joe Biden says, I don't really want that now. Now I, I, I want this to all be new spending and I don't want to pay for it over eight years. And by the way, we still haven't agreed on exactly how we were going to pay for this in the beginning. So... Bye-bye. This has gone on, the Capito negotiation, for about three weeks. So what's next? Well, enter the G20. The G20 is a group of 20 senators, 
It is a bipartisan group. And indeed, it includes not only many of the Republican moderates that you've heard so much about, including Mitt Romney, but crucially also the two Democratic recalcitrants, the ones that are standing in the way of any reconciliation vote, which would require each and every Democrat. And that is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. So now they're going to negotiate an infrastructure plan and then they're going to bring it to Joe Biden. Let's go back to Capito for a second, though. This was her quote. While I appreciate President Biden's willingness to devote so much time and effort to these negotiations, he ultimately chose not to accept the very robust and targeted infrastructure package and instead end our discussions. However, this does not mean that bipartisanship isn't feasible. Capito told Fox News she was, quote, extremely disappointed because we offered the president basically what he asked us to do the first time we met him. So. How does this work now with the G20? Well, I mean, I guess they could come up with a whole nother idea. The, you know, maybe Manchin and Cinema uh, are able to get the Republicans to agree to fiddle with the 2017 tax bill, which is what Joe Biden wants to do. He wants to pay for this by taxing people over $400,000 more than they're being taxed now. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen. In fact, As it seems right now, according to at least one Capitol Hill correspondent, the bill that is being crafted by the G20 is the exact same bill the Capitol just negotiated. Manchin uh, telling Garrett Hawk, I believe he is of NBC, that the the negotiations uh, from from Capito were invaluable, and they are working from her template. <sighs> so here's the question: If Joe Biden didn't want to take the Capito deal before, and Mansion and Cinema, whose votes he needs, think this is a great deal, when and how does this inevitably break down? Well, there's a couple ways to think about this. Number one, nobody on any side right now has any reason to to not let these guys get together and try to pitch the same deal. The White House doesn't, I mean, hell, Joe Biden's out in Europe right now. He's up in Europe, spending euros. And the Republicans were already happy letting Capito talk to Joe Biden because it reduces their liability in people saying the Republicans don't negotiate. The Democrats are getting a little frisky about it, but they know they need mansion and cinema. They need to be on board if the Democrats want to do anything via reconciliation, which means. That Bernie Sanders, as we speak, is putting together a bill that can go through reconciliation. It includes both halves of Biden's $4 trillion plan. And they want to pass it in July. Now, let's just touch on this. You know, I ain't exactly the biggest fiscal budget hawk, but it is worth pointing out that we have already passed a $1.7 trillion COVID bill. And if you combine both of these infrastructure bills for Joe Biden, it's $4 trillion. The last Trump budget, which wasn't that different from the last Obama budget, was... $4 trillion. And they want Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to vote on a $4 trillion party line bill with through reconciliation that's put forth by Bernie Sanders. 
Houseway, how are you going to alienate your key Democratic allies and then ask them to vote for a $4 trillion package on total party lines when the whole point of this is that they don't want to vote for something that isn't bipartisan? In my mind, the only way that this works is if Manchin and Cinema walk away from the G20 angry at the GOP. So what you should be watching for are any comments that are cross from Manchin and Cinema to senators in the Republican Party. If you start seeing those, then this gamble has paid off for not only the progressive but uh, the, the, the progressives but also Joe Biden. Otherwise, man, this just seems like a mess. It seems like a mess and 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 right now it just appears to me from the outside. And look, I'm just a barking dog on the internet. I don't know. I don't have a big brain like all these people out in Washington. But it seems like you don't really have a pathway to do anything right now. Anything. The reality is that the Biden administration has to move closer to Mansion and Cinema. Because even if they're going to pass this via reconciliation, they need those two. Benjamin Netanyahu has been in power in Israel for 12 years. He just recently emerged from renewed violence with Hamas in the Palestinian territories. He has hung on to his power recently, despite four consecutive elections in short order. He faces legal peril, and it is a widespread belief that he is holding on to his position because the second he leaves, he will be embroiled in that legal peril. Now, I am not a scholar in, you know, what Netanyahu faces, nor uh, am I any kind of expert in whether or not he would be prosecuted for those crimes. But what we do know is we're going to find out likely this weekend what is going to happen because looks like that Yahoo is out. One of his protégés, Bennett, has cut a deal with a ragtag group of disparate interests in the Knesset that all agree on one thing. BB needs to GTFO. The deals have been cut and the alliance is formed, but the new government, which would see, because remember, this is a parliamentary system, so the leadership of the system relies on the alliances that are formed between the parties. And as it seems now, Netanyahu's party, the Likud party, is going to be on the outs because the the opposition parties, many of which don't really agree on much of anything, but they do agree that BB sucks. And so they just needed a figurehead that they could do it with uh, and, and the votes to back them up. That's what's going to happen on Sunday. Unless Netanyahu and his allies can spook anyone plotting against him to have a change of heart. So here's how this is going. Normally, whenever you have a situation like this, you, you, the, the transition happens fairly fast. There's a deal cut between the parties. The Speaker of the Parliament uh, uh, has a vote to see whether or not the votes align with what people are saying privately. And if indeed there is a changing of the guard, then the new leader of that coalition becomes the prime minister. But... Netanyahu is old growth power. Even in a weakened state, he's got people looking out for him. And that includes the parliamentary order of the Knesset, which means that they are now doing this vote on Sunday. They delayed it until the weekend and they can't vote for anything on Saturdays. So Sunday it is. That leaves a couple days for. Netanyahu to try to spook anybody who is going to vote against him to maybe have a change of heart. 
Netanyahu has been very close to losing power for a couple of years now. But this looks like it's it for him. This looks like he's definitely about to get God. Now, if that's the case, I don't exactly know. It doesn't appear that that Bennett, his replacement, has a gigantic mandate. This is this is a a a marriage of convenience, it seems, between the coalition that he has put together, based on my reading. So I don't know if there's any, you know, from from our perspective here in America, if there's any particular big changes in how Israel runs that you might see. But if you are somebody that has a negative opinion on Benjamin Netanyahu, well, get ready to pop the champagne on Sunday because it looks like he's getting his just desserts. Then. Ladies and gentlemen, I will be in New York City this, uh, uh, the, the, the 20th, 21st, 22nd for the New York City Democratic primary and following this. Oh, by the way, here's here's the update on that. The new controversy. We're getting into some real silly stuff. I'm actually really enjoying this election. The new mini controversy in the New York Democratic mayoral primary is that the front runner, Eric Adams, might live in New Jersey. <gasps> Shock. Shock. Indeed. Is there anything more disgusting that you can say to somebody trying to be the mayor of New York than you live in Jersey? Oh, it's such a New York City thing. So apparently Eric Adams is the Brooklyn Borough president. He came out today to to try to prove to reporters that indeed he does live in 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 Brooklyn. Brought him over to his house. Andrew Yang is calling for Eric Adams' easy pass records. You know we're getting into silly season when you're asking for the easy pass records. But it very much looks like at this point a two-man race between Adams and Yang. And they are now starting to swing on each other. It looks like Andrew Yang is starting to, to show some teeth. Remember, he was the big... Smiley, fist bumps and hugs, candidate before, and now he is, uh, he is, uh, 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 he is, he's, he's flashing, flashing some fangs, trying to nip at, at, at Adams, trying to be a fighter. I don't know if it fits him perfectly, but he did seem at home today as he was laughing and, uh, uh, laughing about <laughs> released your easy pass records because you live in Jersey. Which I think is nice. Anyway, we're going to be there. We're going to see Adams. We're going to see Yang. We're going to see Garcia. We're going to see Stringer. We're going to see everybody we possibly can. And I'm going to see you guys at a meetup on Sunday. Location to be determined. It all happens because you support me. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you go. Sign up at the $3 level and you get bonus podcasts on Sunday night. That, or sorry, uh, Monday morning, Sunday night, really. It comes out at midnight on the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday program, wherein I watch the uh, uh, Sunday political talk shows and I tell you what the big narratives that they are trying to push really are so you can have a Rosetta Stone for your political week. And then, of course, the late edition on Thursday, wherein we... Uh, cover the latest stuff that has happened in our in our PX3 production week because, uh, spoiler alert, this episode is uh, produced before then. So there you go. TakePoliticsSeriously.com The $3 level, the level gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week. Thank you so much.
deadline journalism is very, very, very difficult. Even at the top of the industry, a place that features world-class talent at every stage, mistakes will happen. But what's the line between an innocent error and willful negligence? How does the personal politics of those writing the words affect these key decisions? For example, what if late one night, one of the biggest newspapers in the world wrote an editorial about a horrifying news event, one that included political violence? What if they got sloppy and insinuated that a conservative public figure had years ago incited a similar incident? Well, that's not a hypothetical. It happened. The paper is the New York Times. The conservative is Sarah Palin. And now the pair are locked in a legal battle set to resolve this fall. To discuss the entire story, we welcome Bill Gruskin, of the Columbia Journalism Review. Welcome to the show, Bill. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I, I have this kind of ongoing dare with my audience because they seem to keep telling me that they enjoy delving deeper and deeper into the world of, of inside journalism. And I keep believing that eventually, one day, it will be too inside. And, and, and even their okay. insatiable oh. thirst... For the mechanisms of the world of journalism will 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 one day be too rich even for them, but uh, I, I feel like this is a such a fascinating and kind of high stakes and celebrity big name example of of an inside com law situation that uh, uh, they will be they will be fascinated by it. We are talking about your coverage of a a uh, a situation that the New York Times got into with Sarah Palin. Can you can you lay out in in the 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 10 peso version exactly what this uh, uh kerfuffle is? Sure. And um let me preface my remarks by saying my, my law degree from the Twitter University School of Law <laughs> and I am I am not really a lawyer, so I'll I'll try to um um uh summarize this as best I can. But, yeah. uh, with the little fine print that nobody should take anything I say about the law as their own legal this, advice. Yeah, as, as, as far as legal advice goes, this is for entertainment purposes only. Right. Yeah. Great. So uh, basically what happened, um, I mean, well, to start to start at the real be beginning here, about 10 years ago, you'll remember the horrible shooting in uh, Arizona when Gabby Giffords was grievously injured and uh, a half a dozen people, including a young girl and a federal judge, were uh, killed when a crazy gunman went to an event in, uh, in uh, Arizona and started shooting. And around that time, it surfaced that Sarah Palin, her political action committee, had put out a map of, um, of various congressional districts, including Giffords, that had what appeared to be crosshairs on them. Uh, and saying these are the um, Democratic Congress people that we need to target in order to win the House of Representatives. Um, no, that was that was that was a fundraising appeal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was for her political action committee. This is yeah. long after. Uh, this was several years after she had uh, burned out as uh, a vice presidential candidate and had stepped down as Alaska governor and was basically a, a Fox News personality and that kind of thing. Um, and at the time, it got some criticism. But in fact, there was no real evidence that the assassin in the Arizona case had seen Palin's um, uh, brochure or had been inspired by it in any way. He was a nut job who shouldn't have had a gun, and, and he's now in prison. Okay, so that was in uh, 2011. You fast forward about six or seven years later, and there's another terrible shooting involving Congress people. This was uh, when the, the gunman came to the Alexandria, Virginia baseball park where some congressional Republicans were doing a softball practice and he uh, opened fire. Fortunately, nobody was killed. Steve Scalise was badly injured. 
Um, a few others were um, were were um, were definitely at risk, and the assassin or the would-be assassin in that case was killed by the security forces there. So that happened in June of 2017. And that day, obviously, it got a huge amount of news coverage. But at the New York Times, the uh, editorial board folks bounced around the idea of, should we do what's called a house editorial, which is one of those unsigned editorials that appears in case of the Times on, on the left side of the page yeah. uh, that represent the wisdom of the editorial board. And it bounced around for a while, and uh, uh, there was a woman who worked for the editorial page in Washington named Elizabeth Williamson, a uh, very talented journalist, previously worked at the journal, the Wall Street Journal, where I used to work, uh, as well as the Washington Post. And she suggested that she should do uh, an uh, editorial on the shooting in uh, Alexandria and do them like that day so it would appear in tomorrow morning's newspaper on the website that night so she puts together a draft sends it in has kind of a glancing reference to the palin brochure but she's pretty careful in her draft not to not to tie the arizona shooting much less the alexandria one to what palin did yeah. Uh, and actually, Bill, Bill, if I can if I can stop you here just because I, I, I don't sure. want I don't want us to go too far. Uh, uh, and and this is definitely going to be rudimentary to you. But for for folks that are listening that aren't familiar with the way that newspapers are are built, the editorial board and, and the staff therein is purposely walled off from the yes. other reporting sections of of the paper. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that up, Justin. So on the news side, they were covering it like the very big news story that it yeah. was. Uh, but the editorial page was bouncing around ideas on basically this is a terrible thing. We don't want people assassinating our, our uh, Congress people when they're in like any situation. Uh, and what can we what can we say about it as the editorial yeah. board of the New York Times and, to and our readers? That sometimes, uh, uh, you know, from 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 the news and reporter side, is is tale as old as time. A frustration that an unsigned thing that appears that seems to be speaking for the entire paper yeah. is indeed this very intentionally walled yeah. off group. And not to say that they're not journalists, not to say that they're right. not very hard workers right. and, and right. Uh, uh, very good at what they do. But but uh, uh, that is something that that has has long been a source of frustration between yeah. newsrooms and editorial boards. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked for the Wall Street Journal for twelve or thirteen years. They have a very conservative editorial page, and um, and the newsroom was much more kind of straight down the line. Uh, and our managing editor used to say to us when somebody would complain about the editorial page, "Our readers getting two newspapers for it." The price of one, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're basically getting two. I think in the case of the Times, it's a little bit closer, but we. But that's a whole different podcast. Sure, sure. Okay, so so here we go. Let's let's uh, reestablish your timeline uh, here. The the editorial board right decides that they're going to write something specifically about this Steve right. Scalise shooting, and the initial draft has a glancing man mention to the Palin controversy. Exactly. Exactly. And. Um, and so she sends it up to the New York office and her boss, a guy named James Bennett, who's the head of the editorial page, former editor of The Atlantic, takes a look at it and decides, you know, it's not it just doesn't have enough juice to it or something along those lines. Um, uh, and we can get more into what he actually um, told. Uh, well, he said um, <clears throat> he uh, he uh, did a very heavy edit, and in his edit, he much more closely linked Sarah Palin's brochure to the shooting back in uh, Arizona. He said, and these are his words, the link to political incitement was clear. Um, in the case of the Arizona attack, he goes on to say, there's no sign of incitement as direct as in the Giffords attack, referring to the Alexandria one. Yep. So he's He's drawing a very close linkage between those two things. Um, and the editorial goes online that night, I don't know, 9.30, 10 p.m., as these things usually do. do. It, it sort of got a light edit from, you know, the editorial page editing desk. But look, at this is a piece that's been written by the editorial page editor. People yeah. tend not to edit their bosses too carefully 
or I shouldn't say carefully, too, too heavily. Um, and so the, the thing goes up on the website at around 10 p.m. And within a few minutes, all hell breaks loose. Uh, because lots of people on both the right and the left know that this is wrong. Yes. That, uh, that yes, Palin did this brochure. Yes, there was this shooting. But that's as far as you can draw a linkage between the two. I mean, even Chris Hayes, who's as liberal as you can get, um, went on to Twitter to say uh, something. Oh, he said, let me chime in here to say that's nuts. Yeah. And this is this is this is this is is MSNBC's Chris Hayes, uh, like totally torching this narrative that that uh, the the difference thing, which I think. To to this point, for anybody who's followed this story, and I remember this the the the, the Palin story because it was one of the, the it was very nascent early yeah. political internet stuff. I remember it being covered on on Boing Boing, and and uh, uh, social right. media was just kind of uh, uh, getting its its footing, at least in terms of being influential. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's it's fairly debunked. I mean, like the uh, right. yes, yes, there is a there is a graphic, but it's only the the, the legend that lives on is that initial yeah. kerfuffle that happened. Uh, some people yeah. knew it. Apparently, not the New York Times editorial board. And so, yeah. what 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 kind of hell finds them? And so, obviously, conservatives are unhappy with it. But really, anybody who is interested in accurate coverage of the political landscape, especially <laughs> something. Especially something so touchy as, you know, did Sarah Palin incite, you know, a guy to kill six people? That's that's a big issue. And keep in mind, this is all on the night of this other terrible shooting. So people's nerves and people are 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 already on edge. And this really kind of lit the flame. So and and, and let's and let's also not skip beyond the 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 vector here that this was the the uh, republican congressperson who had just been shot and now there is at least right. in the pages of the new york times an equivalency being drawn to sarah palin inspiring the shooting of right. gabby giffords right. and certainly i i would say from from the conservative side that looks like okay well even when a thing happens to a Republican, this is a minimization in, in progress. Exactly. Yeah. So things are just blowing up, you know, and we've all seen this on Twitter, especially where somebody screws up, somebody posts something, somebody says something that, that goes awry and suddenly there's a million people out there, you know, um, uh, blabbing about it. And, uh, uh, Bennett himself, the editorial page editor himself, was getting some flack, including from one of his own pretty conservative editorial uh, writers saying, I don't think this is right. And so Bennett sends a text to Elizabeth Williamson, the woman in D.C., who wrote the original accurate version, uh, saying, "Are you, this is right, this is like 11.38 p.m., are you up, the right's coming after us, do we have it right? And and she's in bed, right? I mean, yeah. she, you know, uh, and uh, and then the, the next morning, Bennett's sending emails to his staff like at five in the morning saying, we're taking a lot of criticism. I don't know what the truth is here, which is not a great thing for the, for the guy who wrote it to say, I don't know what the truth is. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm very sorry. And, and he does acknowledge this was his own failure. She gets up and there's all these texts between the two of them. Uh, the Times runs a correction, but they botched the correction. They have to run a correction of the correction. Anyway, you know, in kind of a normal world, you know, people get stuff wrong, especially mm-hmm. on deadline. And journalists do this a lot. And generally, you run a correction and the person who got wrong feels badly about it. Um, but that's kind of where it usually ends because uh, the legal landscape makes it pretty hard to take it much further than that. But Sarah Palin um, was like, no, I'm going to sue you guys. And um, so she filed a lawsuit a couple of weeks later. And keep in mind, this is three or four years ago. This yeah. is almost four years ago. Um, it just shows how long these things take. And I won't go through all the legal opinions on it, partly because I don't remember them, partly because I would bore your, your listeners to tears. <laughs> but but um, uh, in what was seen as a fairly unusual case, 
this the federal U.S. district judge um, and and then an appeals panel looked at it and said this case should go forward. And I'll tell you why that's unusual. Sarah Palin is um, a public figure, as they say in the law, and that's something that's incontrovertibly true. Yep. And, I mean, Palin's biggest offender couldn't 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 claim otherwise. If you're a public figure um, in and you feel you've been wronged by a news organization, you have a very high hurdle to jump over before you can actually get your lawsuit in the hands of a jury or, or a judge. You have to show what's called actual malice or a reckless disregard for the truth. And there, there, there are good reasons for that. We want journalists to, especially on the opinion pages, to be able to say things, to have kind of vigorous and unfettered discussion and debate. And uh, courts over the years uh, have held that it's inevitable that journalists are, are going to get this you know, stuff wrong sometimes. So if it's a public figure, you have a very, very high bar you have to jump over before you can actually get your suit to go through the court system. And this is one of the rare cases where somebody who's as public as Sarah Palin got uh, the judiciary to agree with her. And this thing's going to trial. Um, I've talked to attorneys involved in it, and they say in September, we're going to have this trial in a U.S. district courtroom in uh, lower Manhattan, where you're going to have Sarah Palin suing the editorial page or effectively the New York Times. And, and it is going to be wild. All right. Uh, it, it should bear mentioning that all the detail for which you have given us thus far in this interview have come from these filings. It, it's not like just the the, the inside journalism group text that everybody is on, uh, uh, that we have all these details. So these are all available and searchable for people that are interested right. in this case. From your perspective as somebody who follows a lot of this stuff, how common are cases like this reaching these heights? Uh, almost unheard of. Um, first of all, keep in mind, the New York Times has great lawyers, both their in-house counsel and their uh, outside lawyers. They have some of the best media lawyers in the world. Um, and um, so, you know, having a good lawyer in a case like this makes a big difference. But, you know, as you said, and, and this was the basis of my piece for Columbia Journalism Review, there are hundreds of pages of depositions, there are, there are emails, there are text messages. So for me, as somebody who um, who's very interested in kind of how journalists do their business, yeah. it's a really unusual uh, look into how decisions get made, how the sausage gets processed, especially on deadline. And you see kind of how this thing happened, how people went into a panic, um, uh, and kind of how, uh, the New York times now is, is facing a very difficult lawsuit. It, it doesn't mean that they're going to lose the suit. It's going to be a New York jury that, you know, may not feel all that sympathetic towards Sarah Palin. Um, and you know, New York times is the hometown paper, but I can tell you that the times has spent millions of dollars on this, uh, on, on their defense. The, the court file is a mile thick and it's also, you know, led to some really difficult discussions inside the times, which are good in the long run, but they've been very difficult in the short run. So Sarah Palin's case seems to be pretty cut and dry. They wrote something that wasn't true about me in the newspaper and mm -hmm. I've, effect, I've been affected negatively. What is the Times defense of themselves? So what the Times said is, yes, we screwed up. You know, that's why we ran the correction as soon as we could. This stuff happens. Um, they did not give me a very detailed statement, although there's a lot in the court file. What they're arguing is, is they're trying to argue that they're that the that the process here was spotless. What they're trying to argue is that the way the law is. Um, uh, Palin cannot prove either what's called actual malice and what actual malice means for your listeners who don't have a diploma from the Twitter, uh, <laughs> university, uh, uh, 
law school is basically you have to be able to demonstrate that a journalist actually wanted to be wrong, wanted to screw you over. Um, yes. And that's a really hard thing to prove. And, and, and I haven't seen anything in the court file myself that would indicate that. Or you have to show they have a reckless disregard for the facts that, you know, they're just putting stuff in and they don't care whether it's true or not because they're just, you know, crazy people. And, and uh, you know, you don't have to spend too much time on the internet to find examples of the reckless disregard for the truth, sure. obviously. But it's a really, really hard thing to prove. And I think Palin's got her work cut out for her here. Um, if her goal is to win a lot of money, if her goal is to embarrass the times, then I'd say that she's been pretty successful. A lot of stuff has come to light because of this lawsuit, and it's probably encouraged a number of other lawsuits as well. You know, and and again, since we are all here in our uh, esteemed faculty lounge of the Twitter <laughs> Law Degree uh, uh, Alumni Association, uh, uh, it would seem like her... her you know, the, the, the pathway here would be reckless disregard for the truth as opposed to actual malice. Cause there's no like, Oh, we're going to get her kind of commentary in, in the emails or text messages, but there is some, Hey, what is the truth here? Like, uh, uh, after yeah. the fact, which would, would at least, uh, uh, indicate that there was some amount of lax and rash decision-making right. leading up to when they hit publish. Yeah. Well, what you, what you see from the uh, email traffic, from the text messages, that kind of thing, um, is they, they were on deadline. Um, Bennett felt that he needed to pump this thing up to make it, you know, a, a more interesting and um, uh, editorial. Um, it's not clear how much he ran the changes back by the original author of the piece. It's not clear what the quality of editing was uh, once he filed his revised draft. And, you know, I can tell you as somebody who's done a lot of editing in a lot of newsrooms, this stuff does happen. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. You're on deadline, you see the clock ticking, you have to hit the button on something um, and you get something wrong. And usually it's a middle initial, it's, um, I mean, I, I mess up something in my CJR piece. I said it was in Arlington, Virginia. It was in Alexandria, Virginia, sure. I, you know, stuff yeah. like that. You know, and most of those corrections just, you know, that's just part of the normal uh, stuff that goes on. I think where the Times has a problem here is that this is stuff that, that Bennett purposely inserted into the piece. And I think that's probably what's given this lawsuit um, a lot more gasoline rather than in the case of a middle initial wrong. You just thought that you had it and you uh, uh, write and you just transpose it with some other letters or something along those lines. The other thing is that Palin's going to have to show actual damages. So yeah, there we go. So it's not enough to just say you wrote something that makes me look bad. You have to be able to demonstrate to the jury, something that's just going to win any cash from the times that not only did you unfairly make me look bad, but by doing that, you cost me something. It could be, you got me fired from work. You got me ostracized by my community. And now I'm paying thousands of dollars to a psychiatrist. You know, there, there's like all kinds of possible things. And when she's asked in, in her deposition, what was, you know, what was the impact on you? She has this really vague answer about, well, I was on Fox and then I didn't get the contract I wanted on Fox. She was still on Fox. And the truth is there were probably a lot of reasons why Fox was getting tired of having her on air. Not, not so much because, you know, some Fox News executive read this editorial in the Times and said, wow, we better not put her on air anymore i mean it's kind of ludicrous i mean given given fox, yeah given the, people, given the people they put on fox my god you fox, know fox news like, famously famously programmed by the new york times editorial exactly, board exactly so i think in terms of actual monetary damages it's going to be really really hard but she, you know if you had asked me a few years ago about 
could Palin get this far? I would have said no. So, you know, and when you have a jury, you just never know. If you have some people on that jury who have some animus against the times or animus against the press, you, you, you don't know how they're going to take it. I mean, even if she wins a dollar, it's yeah. a win for her because she will have gone to court and beaten the New York Times, which is, you know, worth its weight in gold if you want mm-hmm. to be a conservative pundit. Yeah, exactly. And she can put that on her LinkedIn profile, you know, <laughs> for whatever I mean, like, that's like, no, no joke. I think you can probably sell a book called I Beat the New York Times by Sarah exactly. Payne. Like, I think that that's not yeah. even hyperbole. Yeah. I think you yeah. can sell that yeah. book. Right. I also think it's important to look at this in the context of what's going on. There's a number of conservative judges, including Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, who have said they're very uncomfortable with the way the law works now, um, with the super high standard that it takes for a public figure to be able to sue over a defamation case. And uh, another conservative jurist named Lawrence Silverman uh, echoed this. And Trump, of course, wanted to open up the libel laws, which I think he should be careful about because, you know, he's he says some pretty, it's pretty, pretty fast things. and loose. Yeah. Uh, I think you also have to put this in the context of some hints in the judiciary and possibly in some legislatures that the kind of um, wonderful freedom that journalists have enjoyed for the last several decades uh, could start getting some tighter guardrails on. And and, and let me, let me point out here to, to folks, and I've said it before on the show, but our, our protections of the press and protection, well, uh, speech in general, but, but of, of the press in specific is unique. It, it is unique even amongst, you know, Western democracies, other, other countries that we would imagine as our, as our peers, yeah. like uh, th- there was a reason why, British tabloids have to cite American reporting when it comes to the Royals because they are not allowed to report on them in the way that we can report on anybody from Kim Kardashian's dog to the president. Absolutely. And I believe, and again, I'm testing the limits of my legal knowledge. I believe in Britain, it's up to the media company to prove what they wrote was true not yeah. up to the plaintiff to prove that what they wrote was false. And, you know, proving something true in a way that will convince a, a judge or jury can be pretty hard. I mean, sometimes you put together some circumstantial evidence and come up with a c- conclusion, and it's possible a judge or jury might look at that and say, well, I wouldn't have run that, and then suddenly you're, you're in trouble. Um, you know, as as somebody who pays attention to to the the inner workings of journalism, uh, it, it has been a a large part of discussion that some of our some of the standards in journalism, and specifically in terms of like stories that are totally based on unnamed sources or or or, or things mm-hmm. like that, has become more prevalent, specifically over the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. If we do believe that journalism in the same way that an average person might confuse the unsigned editorial with the the, the news uh, gathering arm, if all of journalism to people is one big orb, yeah. is are, are the loosening standards on, on the news side opening things like this up, which is fairly clearly a mistake made at midnight that that affected uh, uh, the paper. Is is there a, a a reckoning kind of coming for situations like this based on the loosening standards? Um, I think uh, my sense, and I know a lot of people disagree with this, is that standards have not really loosened that much at kind of core mainstream news organizations. Mm-hmm. But that there's so much stuff out there, uh, a lot of which gets uh, weaponized by Facebook's algorithms or gets retweeted endlessly, that's just completely unsubstantiated. Um, and I think to the general populace, it's hard for them to distinguish, okay, this is an article from the Associated Press, whereas this is an article that a bunch of my friends are sharing on Facebook from some you know, news site that nobody's ever heard of. 
Yeah. And you put them side to side in your Facebook feed and they look equally credible, right? I mean, you like can't distinguish one from the other uh, unless you really kind of dig into it, which most people aren't going to do. So um, I think uh, the standards have always been loose among you know certain parts of non-traditional media. I think what's different now is that those outlets have much greater reach than they ever had before. If it's some crazy person in the basement with a copier putting flyers together, you know, while he's adjusting his tinfoil hat, well, that's no big deal. If yeah. he's putting it on Facebook and getting his friends to share it, and suddenly it's all over your, your Facebook feed, that's a big deal. And um, we've seen certain actors become very uh, adept at using these algorithms to promote just complete BS stuff. Um, and people are gullible enough to fall for it. I do also wonder as the pay model has switched even amongst our, our, our leading names in newspaper journalism, which has always been my passion, the post, the times, the journal have, have become mm -hmm. more paywall dependent, getting those yeah. clicks to get people over the wall, to get people to expend their X amount of free articles per month and incentivize them to, to buy into a, a, a subscription is part of the model. And I think that sometimes that, that does involve maybe more salacious headlines, maybe, uh, uh, you know, not to say that it's unfounded reporting, not to say that it's even sloppy reporting, but certainly maybe right. more of what we would expect yeah. in, in gossip reporting, as opposed to, you know, a, a three sources and an official comment kind of reporting, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to politics and government. Yeah, I, I, I think definitely there's, um, a, a slathering of kind of sales gloss that gets put on stories, including stories by otherwise very credible news organizations. Uh, they're there because they know, I mean, you can do live testing online where you test one headline against another and, yeah. and, and it's called AB testing. It's done yep. in a lot of newsrooms and you'll put one kind of boring anodyne headline on it. And then you'll put another one like, you won't believe what Congressman X said today. And, you know, you can see the amount of traffic that goes to it. And I think um, there's certainly some economic motives here, but I think from the standpoint of most journalists, what journalists want beyond having a safe and secure job is uh, impact. And if, if, the, if the story with headline A got 5,000 pages, the one with headline B got 500,000, well, that incentivizes a certain behavior by everybody in that newsroom, assuming the headline B isn't something that's just totally inaccurate or defamatory. But um, and I think that that does take a, a toll over time. I think people uh, they'll click on a story because they're misled by the headline, um, or there's some kind of framing of it that, that really isn't supported by the underlying journalism and that kind of thing. Well, it is a fascinating story about a story and we will be very excited to see it play out with our esteemed professor of Twitter law uh, and uh, more importantly, uh, a, a man who writes uh, fantastically at the Columbia Journalism Review, Bill Gruskin. Thank you. thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me on, Justin. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. The show was edited by Brett Stewart. Uh, if you would like to thank William Gruskin for coming on and, and talking through that entire story, I think it is well, well, well worth uh, uh, paying attention to. If you care about the intersection between journalism and politics, and I think you guys do, well, then head on over to px 3 Guest. Com. You can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. My Twitter is at px3tweets. My Twitch is px3live. A Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule there. Although, uh, uh, no stream today. This is getting in the way. px3newsletter.com is where you can get our newsletter. And px3podcast.com is how you can share this show. Politicsmerch.com is where you get all your politics, politics, politics merch, including... 
Are COVID shots equals body shots, tank tops, t-shirts, and masks? If you would like to support us with a one-time donation, you can go to paypal.me slash payjury. You can go to our cash app, px3cash is where you do that. Or you can hit me up on my Venmo, justin-young-20. Ian gave me a dollar. Because you want to know what, friends? Venmo money isn't real. And I love it when you guys, whenever ever an episode comes out, there's just a bunch of dollars hitting the stage. Ah, just feels so pretty. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week. The Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show and the late edition covering all the news that we missed during our free podcast schedule. The $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier, including Headphones Neil, Dr. G, The Other Half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, The Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Stephen, Kathy Mag, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methuselah, Honeyfuckle, The Gen, Middle-Aged Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D-Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, Anile Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah Jimmy Montana, Chad, David, Snuffies of Route 44, Charles, David, Olin, and Angela, Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, D. Laser, just another pilot, Will, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, and Andrew. You want to get your name on there? Well, you just head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That'll wrap us for the week. Looking forward to next week when we will have a great, a great interview. In fact, I'm, I'm actually just about to record it now. Y'all remember when I was talking about the California recall? Y'all remember when I was saying that, you know, somebody that could really make a big splash here would be an influencer? I said Logan Paul because that was like the biggest YouTuber who I, I think is is trying to think fourth dimensionally in terms of how exactly he could apply his fame. He had a ridiculous fight with Floyd Mayweather where the only real winners were their bank accounts. So I, I don't know if he's going to be able to carve out his schedule for, uh, for, for, for a run for governor. But we do have a YouTuber running. I've watched his 20-point plan video. And I don't know if he's going to win. But I do think he is somebody that is, is, is thinking about this in the way that I would assume a competent creative influencer would. We've got our influencer candidate running for the California recall and we talk to him next week. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Oh, Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.